the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back in the 1970s, people of faith, evangelical Christians, people who were believers in a Judeo-Christian, biblically-based moral code or ethic, were referred to as the silent majority. Well, here we are, fast forward the clock 40-something years, and we're not so silent anymore, and we are definitely in what appears to be a growing minority. What has happened with this major paradigm shift where what had once been considered normative and mainstream is now all of a sudden, well, from one end of the continuum, irrelevant to the other, considered extreme? Well, some insights on not just the shift, but also how we who are most impacted by this shift can appropriately and effectively respond to it. We take a look at Good faith, being a Christian when society thinks you're irrelevant and extreme. Joining me is the president of the Barna Group, a leading research and communications company that I know you're very well familiar with, Dave Kinneman. And David, thanks so much for being on the program. Thanks so much for having me, Craig. Boy, uh, certainly this election cycle is proving uh, this point to a tremendous degree. Try to have any kind of a civil conversation with people of opposing viewpoints, and you suddenly realize that <laughs> we've made the paradigm shift for what had been, uh, for the most part, 2,000 years of historic Christian faith and mores, and now all of a sudden we are the ones considered the extremists. What's going on? Well, I think there's a lot of cultural changes that are taking place, but I mean, certainly the data bear that out, that a majority of Americans now uh, think that, that, that religion as its practice can be part of the problem. So, for example, we find that if you were to share your faith with somebody, 60% of Americans believe that's a socially extremist thing to do. Uh, it's okay if someone came to you and asked about your faith and wanted to find out more, but if you try to actively evangelize somebody to try to talk somebody who wasn't really all that is interested in listening uh, into your faith, then, then that's viewed as extremism. So the, really the way we conclude um, in this project about what's happening is that the, the society that we live in is changing its mind about the Christian way of living, and that, that's evangelism, that's attitudes towards sex and sexuality, that's public expressions of religion. Uh, Christianity is increasingly viewed, as you mentioned, as extremist or as irrelevant, and and so Christians are really struggling with what to do with that. We are struggling indeed, and of course, at some levels, it's hard to uh, hard not to internalize a lot of this or or take it uh, tremendously personally. I mean, many of us that are old enough to remember a day and an age when we were kind of in the mainstream, and when expressing views, for example, of uh, believing in the moral code, sharing our faith, marital faithfulness, uh, biblical errancy, kind of put us in the in the norm, and all of a sudden now that's considered to be extremist, and in some camps, uh, things like prohibiting young women from getting an education, forcing them to dress in black and cover their faces in public, and even executing people for not believing, that's, that's okay. 
Yeah, well, I, mean, I think this is, you know, obviously you're speaking about Islam and other countries, but in the United States, what's interesting is that um, Americans are changing their mind around a lot of things. So sex and sexuality, uh, praying for people in public, public expressions of evangelism. And what we find in the research is that a majority of American Christians are feeling very pressured. Uh, in fact, a majority are feeling uh, persecuted. They use that term to describe their faith in culture today. Uh, my co-author of this book, Good Faith, and I are careful not to use the term persecution. We don't think that that's the way that pe people in North America are currently. We're not being persecuted in the same way uh, that people around the world are being persecuted, as you mentioned, um, in, in, you know, in, in the Middle East and in other kind of contexts. Christians can face very brutal um, suppression of faith. But in, in the United States, we do think that there is a, a new level of pressure. There's certainly more skeptics, that is, people that are, that are um, you know, skeptical about faith and religion in America. Um, and that's actually the fastest-growing, quote-unquote, faith group is people that are religiously unaffiliated. And so I think there's a lot of things that are, that are making for a more pressure-filled environment for today's Christians. And among younger Christians, a group of people that we spend a lot of time studying here at Barna, millennials, um, people that are in their teens and young adults, they're, they're telling us that they're often afraid to speak up on behalf of their faith, they're feeling pressured, they're feeling silenced, they're feeling sidelined. And, you know, listen, we actually find good evidence that they're sticking up for their faith, that they're a bright light in the midst of a very dark generation. But those are perceptions that we have to take stock of, that they're feeling pressure, they're feeling as though their faith doesn't matter in the world. So how do we help to fortify them in their faith? And that's really what we did with this project, was to try to help Christians navigate these very difficult conversations that we're having now about faith and culture, why Christianity still matters, why we can be irrelevant and extreme, and that is actually what Jesus is calling us to be in the very best way possible. Is part of this then ultimately, David, to change up both our perspective on this and the dialogue? Because I think at the core, uh, people of faith, Bible believers, those that have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we know the relevancy of the gospel. The problem is that maybe the methodology and manner in which we have communicated that has failed in some respects to keep up with the times, and the world and culture around us has changed and changed very dramatically. Technology has a part, I think, to, to play in all of that, and now suddenly we feel kind of like the children of Israel, although here we are living in exile in our own country. Yeah, this theme of exile is a key theme that we bring up in our in our work, um, and I think our research really bears that out. That Christian, you know, Christianity is a ma still a majority of Americans. People identify as Christian, uh, but the evangelical community is is really only about um, one in ten Americans, depending on how you measure it. And um, and listen, you, you know, for those of us who are very committed to Scripture and committed to Jesus, that. Um, we're, we're really much more countercultural than we realize, and you know we think we're living in mostly a Christianized country, but that's just not really the case. In fact, what's happening is not just a non-Christian culture; it's a, a it's a it's a selfish and narcissistic culture. And sometimes, frankly, we're as Christians part of that. There's this document this, we document in the book this new rise of the self as the new sort of god of the age, and everyone's sort of looking at themselves as their own sort of spiritual judge and jury. In fact, we found that 91% of Americans say the best way to find themselves is to look within themselves. And, and so that's just very counter to what Scripture tells us, that the best way to find ourselves is to discover ourselves in a truth outside of ourselves, in Scripture, in Jesus, in the traditions of the Church, and so uh, to, to find ourselves, you know, we, we really need to look at those, those external sources of truth in Jesus 
but mostly our culture is changing its mind and wants to be, uh, you know, kind of its own judge and jury. And so, yeah, that's really part of what we were working on this book to do was to help Christians navigate those really difficult conversations about how to have a countercultural view towards living faithfully today. And of course, the irony is, if you look at a couple of letter uh, levels, both in terms of sort of the the, the governmental engagement. Um, as well as the the religiosity engagement, uh, this is certainly not a new challenge from Christ's perspective, is it? I mean, he had to contend with not only Rome, but he certainly had to contend with the church of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so in terms of that engagement at that level, uh, no surprise to Jesus. It's just for us, well, this is the first time we've kind of experienced it, at least here in America, isn't it? I think that's exactly right. And I mean, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great perceptive question because we're dealing with several challenges, many challenges in, in American culture today, one of which is uh, the changing social landscape and the fact that in a lot of ways, it's not just that the Bible has less authority. Almost every institution has less authority in Americans' lives than it did a decade or two decades ago. The Bible has less authority. The church has less authority. Government has less authority. Media, political leaders... Uh, we're living in a celebrity age, and that's just one indication of the sort of self-centered, narcissistic, god-of-self kind of world that we live in. But the other problems, really, if we're taking stock of this, is that you know the church is often very self-righteous in its orientation to the world. And if we read Scripture carefully, um, we can find that you know one of the bigger problems in, in the world isn't just the unrighteousness of society, isn't just the ways in which we're godless as a culture. It's about the ways the church loses its moral path towards righteousness in Christ, not through our own power. And the message of Galatians is this very thing, is that, you know, you start your, you start your spiritual journey in Jesus, but then you try to perfect it through human effort. And I think that we have to be pretty hard on ourselves when we find that self-righteousness is creeping into our Christian communities. And it happens all the time. Uh, you know, every day, all of us as Christians can, can veer towards self-righteous judgmentalism, which is just as much a problem as the unrighteousness in the world that we're trying to solve. Let's pause on that point. We're going to pick up more of the dialogue on the other side here as we're visiting with David Kinneman. David is the president of the Barna Group, an internationally recognized research and communications company. George Barna has been a guest on this program many times down through the years. David is co-author of a new book called Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're irrelevant and extreme. We'll continue our conversation on how to learn and counter all of that as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So how do we deal with, quite frankly, living in an outright hostile culture towards Christians and people of faith and that sense that we have become suddenly, well, frankly, irrelevant and extreme in the views of some? And part of the challenge, of course, here is uh, changing attitudes. And I think perhaps our uh, guest tonight would agree that the most critical attitude regarding such matters that needs to be changed, in fact, the only one that we really ultimately have any control over, is our own. David Kinneman is the president of the Barna Group and co-author of Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and extreme. Let's talk about attitudes, and particularly those of us, I think, that challenge or feel challenged by all of this, David, and yet um, sometimes take the self-righteous position that, well, they're the ones at fault, not me. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest challenges uh, that people have today in the church, and my dad is a lifelong pastor, has this great line that Jesus is just as concerned about our self-righteousness 
in the church as he is about the unrighteousness in the world. And I think that's um, that's a very apt statement. And so, um, you know, when you look in the in the New Testament, uh, Paul is primarily concerned, if not almost exclusively concerned, about the faithfulness of the of of the church, um, you know, in Revelation, where John's writing about uh, his his revelation of Jesus, in the early chapters about the the seven churches in in um, in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, he basically says, you know, the, the faithfulness of those seven church bodies in those different communities in Philadelphia and Pergamum and um, you know Ephesus, that that the faithfulness of those churches is the thing that will change culture uh, in so many ways, in so many words. So I think this is one of the, the key things that we tried to do with our project was to, to say to, to Christians, there's a way to live with good faith, even when society thinks that we're irrelevant and extreme, um, that there's a way for us to have these difficult conversations when it looks at we're trying to help our, our, our kids and our grandkids and our millennial you know, teenagers and youth to try to understand what it means to live faithfully, that there's, there's a way to do this. And we, we actually think that, that we can approach this very challenging, contentious culture with joy, with Jesus' love in our hearts, with the uh, truth in, from Scripture, not not watering down uh, the truth of Scripture, and so that's really a lot of the things that we were trying to do was to help people have those difficult conversations in their in their churches and in their families. Part of the challenge here too is we talk about changing the dialogue here, changing attitudes and viewpoint. I mean, historically, and I, I think we've seen this over even uh, the last many election cycles, where as people of faith have been kind of drawn into the political arena, we see much of what needs to be done in terms of uh, resolving moral issues and societal problems is just that. They are problems to be solved, as opposed to what would be, I think, uniquely Christ's take on all of this, and that is that these are people in need of a Savior. They're, they're, they're people that are walking apart from God that don't know him personally. They may have problems, to be sure, but the goal here, ultimately, the powerful approach is not going to be to simply try to be problem-focused, but rather relationship-focused, no? Yeah, absolutely, and, and we make the argument in the project that, you know, it's not just issues to be solved, but people to be loved. And, and we love them. We lead with our love. Love is the preeminent virtue. I think a lot of times Christians worry about loving people too much that it might somehow condone the wrong behaviors or wrong perspectives. Uh, but love never works that way, as we read in Scripture. And it doesn't mean that we, um, you know, condone people's behaviors, but there's a certain degree to which, you know, when we understand how love works and how the countercultural truth of Scripture, and I don't want to underestimate that, it's truth and grace. Uh, that that love really is is part of what we're trying to call people to. So in in the book we basically make the argument that that, that good faith works when we love people as Jesus does at cost to ourselves. That we trust the countercultural truths of Scripture, and then we live that out by bringing the you know restoration into the brokenness of people's lives. So you know a lot of times I think people struggle because when we love people well, we're actually trying to restore them to God's original intent as a generous person as a person of joy and faith, um, and, and a lot of times uh, their their own brokenness has brought them to a place where they can't really experience that. And so our love through Christ actually helps to restore them to that original intent that Jesus has for them. So it's not becoming wishy-washy when it comes to our morals or what we believe in. In fact, in some respects, it might be strengthening that, because one of the big arguments that I often hear from people that are not of faith that say, oh, you Christians, you know, you, you talk a good game, but try to engage in dialogue, and you can't even give an articulate reason uh, of what you believe, let alone why you believe it. So it, it's not a matter of, of 
letting go or compromising our beliefs, but maybe in some ways, David, learning more about them and then being able to, uh, with clarity as well as a, a sense of, of self-confidence, engage in a non-defensive faction, a fashion in giving reasons for our faith? Absolutely. And, you know, just to give you a little bit of like what caused us to write this book, which I think answers that question that you're, you're asking is, you know, we, I have a 16-year-old, a 15-year-old, an 11-year-old, two girls and a boy. Uh, my co-author, Gabe Lyons, also has teenagers. We're in our mid-40s, or early 40s, 42. And um, giving, I'm aging myself here as we talk. <laughs> I'm 42 years old. And, and, you know, so we kind of thought about, like, what do we do to help our own kids in an era when it's not just enough to have the right answer, you know, like the apologetic, you know, handbook, and you kind of look up, and it's, you know, here's the answer to that particular theological problem or apologetic question. That's still important, but the question is, how do we live, and how do we um, understand this very skeptical culture, this exile, this modern-day exile that we're kind of living in, and then how do we live that out? And so what motivated us to to write this this book, um, along with the data that we collected on behalf of this project, and the problems, the pressure that Christian community is feeling, was really our own our own experience with our kids about trying to give them confidence that Christianity actually does matter. It is. It does answer the questions of a complicated age. Your, you know, their peers, their their millennial peers who are increasingly living a spiritual but not Christian life need to understand the importance of Jesus in their lives. And so we were we were really trying to fortify our own children to give them uh, confidence that that Christianity is going to matter in their in their lives. Again, for some of those difficult conversations that they are going to face. Is it important to, in your opinion, uh, David, and based on the research, that we that we give the other side a chance to hear them out, at least to hear their heart? And I ask that question because so often, as I've watched uh, a Christian in dialogue with another believer or non-believer, that they they seem to be concentrating not on what's being said or the heart of the individual, but rather ready to pounce with a response or an answer or a counterpoint. Um, and the irony is if you sit down and talk to the average person out there who was not an individual of faith and kind of, I find, dig down into what motivates them, what drives them, that while some of the ultimate opinions that they hold or moral positions that they may have, we might find, uh, you know, in the range from, uh, you know, disappointing to outright disgust. Yet oftentimes we, we can find at least some nuggets that, while perhaps misinformed, it, it, at least there's something genuine in there that, that, that maybe we can use as a starting point to engage in dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head, and it's really one of the purposes for the book was to try to give people an understanding of the heart behind opposing, opposing viewpoints, behind someone who would have a very different point of view, uh, to try to understand that you see these individuals as people first, not as arguments to be won or issues to be solved, but as, as we said earlier, as people to be loved. And, um, you know, G- Jesus has this incredible countercultural way. I mean, he's the hardest, uh, the most sort of, uh, you, you know, uh, difficult in his conversations with, uh, with religious insiders, and he's the most compassionate towards people who have a very different point of view. Um, you know, towards women, towards sinners, towards individuals who would would seem to be at odds with his you know very message, and um, and I think that's that's so important for us as Christians today is to to realize that um, you know think of the last time someone came to your door and knocked and really persuaded you by uh, you know argumentation about the you know Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or someone who came maybe to evangelize and it's just like we're never persuaded in that way. 
Um, you know, they're looking for people who aren't really settled in their beliefs. They're looking for people who can be persuaded. And I think sometimes we end up looking at everyone as like a target. And Jesus asks us to be evangelistic, to go and make disciples, but not to go look, you know, to go target hunting. And I think that's an important distinction to really see the friendships, the heart behind people who disagree, the fact that we can love people, even if they never dis- never end up agreeing with us in this earthly life. Again, we want to try to pray for them and to talk about, you know, the, the, the truth as Christ and as he's changed our own lives. But, but again, changing the metric of success from simply getting someone converted uh, to really becoming really deep friends that, that, you know, we're able to say Jesus has changed our lives. Could he, could he, in fact, change your life? And even deeper still, oftentimes I think the approach is we're simply trying to win the argument um, as opposed to win somebody for Christ or or, or love them uh, in a fashion that while, yes, we know ultimately we, we have a concern for their soul, and yet uh, first and foremost uh, to demonstrate the love that God showed for us that we understand, to a degree at least, the amazing thing that has been done that through Christ's work on the cross, we might be forgiven. And so empowered with that knowledge and understanding to go and to do, and as David points out, not to see people as problems that need to be solved, but rather as people to be loved. And some wonderful insights inside the pages of this new book. Again, the book newly published by Baker. You'll find it at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get it online. Go to simply Book. Org. That's goodfaithbook.org. And our thanks to David Kinneman, the author of this book and president of the Barna Group, for being with us tonight. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The Apostle Paul reminds us that we are to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within. Certainly makes sense from a perspective of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, after all, um, if we're in this love relationship with the Lord and he has redeemed us, as we share that good news with others, don't we want to be be articulate about um, what he's done in our life? and how he can change somebody else's life, too? While certainly that's the desire, I think a lot of people, when it comes to the matter of of sharing their faith or evangelism, get nervous. They get nervous because oftentimes we are afraid that somebody is going to ask us a question that we can't give an answer for. Oftentimes this goes to the heart of the question as to whether or not we are ready to give that answer for the hope that lies within. Brand new book out that uh, helps give some insight to some of the bigger questions and uh, appropriate answers to same. Written by Mark Middleberg. The book is called The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. And Mark, great to have you on the show tonight. Great to be with you. I have to wonder, we look at some of these questions here, you know, what makes you sure that God exists? How can we trust the Bible? Uh, wasn't Jesus just a good uh, man and teacher? Uh, are, are very common questions, to be sure. And one would think questions that at the base every Christian would feel comfortable in answering. But obviously, a book like yours suggests that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, you know, in a perfect world, I guess we should. But the real truth is a lot of us uh, grew up with the Christian faith. Our parents taught us as we were young, which is great. But when you're raised kind of on VBS and Sunday school and this is, you know, being taught that this is true your whole life, and, and if you're mostly around Christians, then later when someone really looks you in the eye and says, yeah, but how do you know? And, you know, you believe the Bible, it's full of contradictions, it's based on myths, it's, you know, how can you accept that? Well, a lot of us quite naturally feel intimidated by that because we just haven't prepared ourselves for that. 
So that's really the spirit of this book is to say, these are the questions we're afraid of. This is based on a national survey we did about a year and a half ago that summer. We asked a thousand Christians, you know, what are the issues that you hope will not come up when you're in a conversation with a non-Christian? And these are the top 10 questions that came up. So let's get ready, because if we feel ready, then we're much more willing to get into those conversations and much more likely to be used by God. Now, for many years, you served as evangelism director at Willow Creek Community Church there in Chicago. Um, As you spoke with folks that were coming through your program, uh, there seemed to be a commonality um, over intimidation by some of these questions, and I'm wondering how much of that might have gone to, as you suggest, maybe a sense of Christian isolationism where we really don't know the answer to these questions because we've never been asked them, uh, and then to maybe to a level of just simple biblical illiteracy where a lot of folks are just not that familiar with Scripture enough to feel comfortable in in, in speaking to some of these questions. Yeah, I, I think that's very true. I think... Uh... Again, I think sometimes as churches, we're a lot better at teaching, especially young people, teaching them what to believe but not why it's true. And so a lot of young people grow up learning the creeds, learning Bible verses, uh, being able to kind of parrot back the right answers. But again, I think in the training, and I'm a real advocate even in Sunday school classes, where we say, okay, let's let's role play here a little. I used to do this when I was a high school Sunday school teacher. I'd say, for the next half hour, I'm going to be a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, or I'm going to be a strong, you know, kind of atheistic evolutionist, and I'm going to challenge your ideas. And and at first it freaked the kids out, but then they they really took to it because they they realized, well, wait a minute, we have answers to these things, and so I think we just need to really force ourselves to think more and get more ready, because truth is on our side. We, we don't have to be afraid of these things, but we do, as, as the verse you quoted, First uh, Peter 3.15, we do need to get prepared. There's a couple of issues here at hand, too, I think. Uh, I remember a number of years ago, Norman Geisler was on the program, and we spent some time talking about what, at the time, was an increase in in how should I phrase this, a debate, really, over whether or not it was necessary as a Christian to believe in a a literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ or whether or not that could have been simply a figurative event. And it was amazing to me the number of people that called into our program that night that felt as if, you know, whether or not it was a literal resurrection or a figurative one really didn't matter if at the core, you know, you kind of got the message. And and it, it was a, a, a very big eye-opener for me in understanding that there oftentimes is a gulf of ignorance uh, between what we believe and even going down to the core of why we believe it. Do you think that's true? I think it's very true. And I've been in Bible studies with all church people, evangelicals, who didn't believe in the Trinity or who thought they believed in it but would articulate it in a, in a way that was actually cultic. And so, again, I, my, my mission is not to shame all these people. My mission is to say we just need to do a little more preparation. Let's be honest, we need to do a lot more preparation. And this, Mark, I I should hasten to add, is not just simply for the sake of more effective outreach and evangelism, but ultimately for deepening of our own walk with Jesus Christ. I mean, it it would seem to me um, it would be important for every believer to know why they are sure that God exists. 
Absolutely. I, I think all of these questions first speak to our own confidence and clarity as Christians, especially, again, young people who are going to go away, you know, go away to the university or college and have their faith challenged. And so we've got to equip them in particular, but really all of us. And then the second half is then we're going to be much more able to boldly and confidently and clearly articulate the message and explain to our non-Christian friends how they can know that it's true as well. So very much a double-edged sword cutting both ways, both in terms of being able to deepen our own faith walk and understanding and relationship with Jesus Christ, and then secondarily, once having been equipped with that information, being more effective toward giving that, uh, well, as we said earlier, that answer for the hope that lies within. Our conversation today with Mark Middleberg, a look at the questions Christians hope no one will ask. We'll come to some of those questions as our conversation continues right here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Mark Middleberg, my guest tonight. He is a former evangelism director of Willow Creek Community Church. His new book, The Questions Christians Hope No One Will Ask. As you engaged in this survey, Mark, and I think all of these questions that you outline and detailed answers inside the pages of your new book are all vital ones. Which one would you say, though, that tended to come up the most? Well, and by the way, I need to apologize. I'm just getting over laryngitis. Not, Not a problem. I'm operating with half of my voice uh, cut off here. But uh, the, the very first question we addressed in the book was one of the top two on the survey, and that is, how do you know God exists? You can't see him, feel him, hear him. You know, he's not a physical being, and yet you're kind of staking your life and eternity on belief in him. Why do you do that? And, you know, I think as Christians, again, a lot of us grew up knowing God, believing in God, experiencing God, worshiping God, it's just a normal part of what we believe and know to be true. And yet, when someone says it like that, it's very intimidating. And like, well, I don't know how to prove it to someone else. And so I addressed that one very first. That's chapter one in the book, which, by the way, I can give a website later where people can read that first chapter for free. Why don't you do that right now, Mark? Okay, it's, it's thequestionswithanswers.com. TheQuestionsWithAnswers.com. Right, and we've got uh, Lee Strobel did the foreword, that's there, and then the introduction, and then this first chapter, which is, you know, how do you know God exists? You can't see, feel, hear, or touch Him. Let's, let's address that question. How do we know that God exists? If you can't reach out and physically touch Him, and you're talking with someone who says, look, you know, God gets the blame for a lot of stuff. I just don't know that there's any evidence that God actually exists. Well, it's a great question, and the first thing I say is don't ignore or discount your experience. Um, as a Christian, I grew up being taught this uh, as I grew up, but God is very real to me, and uh, I think anyone who's really walking with Jesus is able to talk about you know, ways he is real to them, ways he has led them, protected them, redirected them, even, even when he convicts us of being in the wrong or of sin, that is God's activity in our lives. So first thing I say is talk about that openly and boldly because it's real. But if you just stop there, the average non-Christian is going to go, okay, well, that's experience, but I, you know, I need evidence. Well, I give two scientific arguments and then one that's more, maybe a little more philosophical. But uh, the first thing I talk about in the chapter is the existence of the universe. 
and I, I'm telling you, this has always been a good argument, but in the last 20, 30 years, science has reinforced this one in a huge way. And the basic argument is this. First of all, whatever begins to exist has a cause. In other words, things don't pop into existence on their own. So whatever has a beginning has a cause. Second part of the argument says the universe had a beginning. And the beauty of this, again, is virtually every scientist now believes in some version of the Big Bang theory, that it, you know, at a point, you know, a finite point in time, there was a huge explosion at which everything that we call the universe came out of an infinitesimal point. And scientists believe this. And, and I do, too, and I think Genesis 1-1 describes it. But they, they think it's a natural event. I just say it's a, a scientific description of a miracle. And so the universe did have a beginning. But then the third part of the argument is whatever had a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning. Therefore, the universe had to have a cause outside of it, a cause that is great enough to produce it, smart enough to produce it, powerful enough to produce it, old enough to be there to produce it, and artistic enough to make it as wonderful as it is. Well, I'm telling you, that's the God of the Bible. And that's, you know, science and philosophy point to this, you know, powerful reality that there is a God that is beyond all of this who created it. One of the other frequent questions that come up is dealing with the issue of the Bible. Now, of course, typically as Christians, we rely on the Scripture as the source of which we use for good, solid apologetics, as well we should. To the person who says, but wait a minute, the Bible was written by men, it's wrought with all kinds of contradictions and errors and mistakes. How or why should we trust the Bible? Again, a question that is very intimidating to a lot of Christians right up front, because they've always accepted it. And they're often tempted to just say, well, it says right here in Second Timothy that the Bible is inspired, it's the Word of God, it's you know, profitable for correction and teaching, etc., etc. And I agree with that. I agree with that verse, but that's not how you're going to prove it to your non-Christian friends. They're going to say, that's just circular reasoning. You're just using the book I'm questioning to try to prove it. You can't do that. So what? what first thing I like to do, Craig, is when someone says, you know, it's so full of contradictions, you can't trust it. I just like to look at them and say, you know, contradictions bother me too, but I'm just curious, what are your top two or three? And I'm telling you, it's usually as silent as what we just experienced, because most people kind of parrot a cliche that they've heard, and that is that the Bible's full of contradictions, and they haven't even looked into it, they haven't read it for themselves, they have no idea and you ask them what are their top two or three contradictions that bother them the most, they don't even have anything to say. And when that happens, which is the majority of the time, I'd like to then say, well, listen, before you start criticizing and writing off the book that has changed the lives of millions or really billions of people, you owe it to yourself to read it for yourself and look at it because you're going to find out it is true and it speaks to your heart, it speaks to your deepest needs. But, now, some people will say, well, you know, there's contradictions there. Uh, you know, some of the Gospels say that there was an angel at the tomb. And then other Gospels say there were two angels at the tomb. And so you can't have, you know, it's either one or two. That's a contradiction. I can't trust a book that, you know, where the guys can't even count angels. 
when we run into those kind of, and by the way, that's the nature of most of what people call contradictions. And what I point out there, and I, this is what I talk about in the chapter in the questions Christians hope no one will ask, I explain that the nature of eyewitness testimony is that it's always incomplete. Uh, I live in Colorado. I'm looking out my window. I can very honestly say there is a pine tree out there. But, Craig, if you were sitting there, you may look out and say, what do you mean there's a pine tree? There's about a thousand pine trees out there. Well, we're both right. See, I didn't say there's only one pine tree. I just mentioned one of the pine trees I'm looking at. And so I gave less than full detail. You said there was a thousand, and you're right, too. But in reality, there's a lot more than a thousand because I live in the middle of the woods. So those are just incomplete levels of information. And so going back to the Bible... One gospel writer mentions an angel. He didn't say there's only one. He just mentioned that there was an angel. Then one of the other writers mentions how many there were. He says there were two. And as one person says, you know, here's a mathematical formula that's helpful. Wherever there's two, there's also one. <laughs> Isn't that good? That's, that's a good perspective. And, you know, the, the other issue here that I think can, can give us all a sense of a sigh of relief, initially you think in a topic like this that it means that we have to get into to deep concentration and study and pull out the thesaurus and the concordances and spend hours on the Internet doing research so that we can memorize all these details and data. But as you heard in those two exemplary uh, questions and answers, that it's really fairly basic. It's not that hard or involved if you know where to look and what to share. A look at the questions Christians hope no one will ask with answers. And as Mark mentions, if you'd like to read the first chapter online, you can do so for free. Go to thequestionswithanswers.com. That's thequestionswithanswers.com. And Mark Middleberg, thanks so much for the time. It's a great book and one that's an easy read and yet I believe a very important read for all Christians who want to not just deepen your own understanding and knowledge of the Scripture, but also how to better improve your ability at sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.